Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Cinema is is myth making, and then documentary as well. It's I, I don't often see documentary and fiction as as totally separate things. I see them all. I see it as a as a continuum of making movies. Even though nobody makes very much money off of documentaries, there is the commercial. There's an aspect of commercialization of commodification of another human being's life that is at the core of of what making a documentary is. And you there you will never get away from that. And you can employ all different kinds of strategies to try to be self-reflective on it, to mitigate it, to reveal it, or in some way to acknowledge it. But it doesn't get rid of it. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 35. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, the Documentary Life podcast, and the Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Back in 2004, I landed my first paid gig as a filmmaker. I'd been asked to go to Southeast Asia and spend six months running sound on a documentary that was filmed in both Cambodia and Vietnam. I was 10 years removed from a degree in communications media. I'd worked a number of different jobs ranging from working as a lab tech to teaching English in South Korea, to writing and editing for WebMD, to being a hotel doorman. But other than a year and a half stint working at a cable TV news station, I'd not gotten very close to living my dream of becoming a director in the film and TV industry. Sure. I'd written, directed, and edited a digital feature in the very early 2000s. I'd written a handful of screenplays and done a few short videos, but I'd not managed to really get any closer to actually working in the film industry. So when asked to spend six months working on a documentary film overseas and then being hired to edit the film afterwards, I jumped at the opportunity, embracing every minute of what had previously only been my dream. But as has already certainly been mentioned at least a couple of times in this show, I didn't exactly take any sort of conventional route to getting into the industry. In fact, it would take me a couple of years after that year working on the documentary before I'd even truly find my way into the film and TV industry. In truth, it wasn't until I was 35 years old that I began regularly working in the industry. It was initially as a production assistant, or PA as it's known in the industry, on commercials, features, and, and TV shows, then as an editor, and, and then I began to be hired as a camera operator, and eventually now as a director DP, as an owner-operator with our documentary production company, Barong Films. Now, I don't necessarily recommend this particular route of of getting into the film industry, but having worked in the industry for over a decade now, I'm not sure I'd recommend really any one particular way of getting into the industry. If I were to, I'd hope that someone would recommend turning off this podcast and never listening to that fool Chris G. Parkhurst ever again. Because if there's one thing that I've learned about the film, TV, commercial, documentary industry, or industries, 
it, it is unlike just about any other form of employment that I've ever known, where there's a pretty accepted and specific way of getting into the profession and, and then the very various positions within that profession. Having now worked in the industry for a while, I've met people from all walks of life with all sorts of backgrounds, with all sorts of different ways that they found them, that they found themselves working in the industry. And for today's opening segment, that's what I'd like to talk with you about. If you are looking to start making a living doing what you love, making films, I'm going to offer up a few different methods that people have used to break into film and TV. After that, we'll get to our Doc Lifer community question of the week, followed by a shared conversation with filmmaker, performance artist, and actor Jeremy Shido, whose award-winning documentary Death Metal Angola is a great example of how your documentary film can often come from what was initially an entirely different venture. Did you know that each and every episode of The Documentary Life has its own show notes? I mean, I'm sure you've heard me mention them on an episode, but have you ever actually gone and checked them out? Because they often have some really nice supplemental materials that go in conjunction with that week's show. There are behind-the-scenes stills of filmmakers and their work. There are video clips. There's additional information on a show's topic. Links to mention websites or resources. Just to name a few of the things that you'll find within show notes. So if you haven't been regularly going to view show notes after listening to a show, you're actually missing out on materials that will further the week's discussion, thereby helping you best live and lead your own documentary life. So after today's show, go to thedocumentarylife.com and start delving into show notes for today's as well as past episodes. It's just another way to be a part of our Doc Lifer community. Last month, we eclipsed the one-year mark for The Documentary Life. We were about 30 episodes in at that point. With our prior format, that would have been equated to around 15 shared conversations with doc industry guests. In that time, we heard a number of people's different stories and their doc lives. As is the case for most of us, only a select few of my guests actually made their entire livings from, from their documentary work. The majority of my guests, including myself, make our livings doing other work in the film and TV industry, whether by doing corporate or commercial work through our own production companies, or working as a freelance editor or DP, or, or working at a creative agency of some sort, we supplement our documentary income by doing other film work. Of course, for a large number of you, working in the film and TV industry is not your way of living your documentary life at all. Many of you are students. Many of you are service industry workers or have office jobs or work in retail, you know, doing whatever it takes in order to be able to live while you practice your craft and passion for documentary films. Many of you who are doing these various ventures are hopeful of one day working in the film and TV industry as your means for supporting your addictive habit, if you will, of documentary. Not all of you, of course, because the truth is, many of us are working a job that's totally unrelated to film, and it's a wonderful way for us to maintain our interest and drive for our documentary films, sort of keeping the passion and our method of income separate as a very conscious choice. So as much as I don't think I've ever suggested such a thing before on this program, for this segment of doc lifers who are not looking to get into the film or TV industry, feel free to jump ahead to the shared conversation with the doc industry guest segment. In this case, I will not be offended at all. I completely understand. That being said, I'll also say that even if you do not ever intend, intend to get into the film and TV industry, there might be still be something of interest to you here in this segment. 
even if it just sparks some bit of inspiration for your doc project or gives you the confidence to approach someone in the industry who might be able to maybe serve your own project somehow, it'll be worth your time. But again, totally up to you. If you want to jump ahead to the guest segment, that's okay too. So I mentioned that many of my guests, myself included, are living our documentary lives by working in the film and TV industry. But just how did we find our way into this industry? What was our first job? What, if any, was the path that allowed us to finally start making a little cash doing what we loved? Mine, as I mentioned earlier, and certainly in prior episodes, was a rather non-circuitous route, shall we say. And I've often wondered if there mightn't have been you know, a smarter, more strategic way that I might have navigated my way into and through the film industry. And truth be told, it's been a few guests that we've had on the show who chose a much more direct and strategic route that have caused me to sometimes you know, question how I did what I did and, and that perhaps if I'd done things a little differently, my film life and then in turn my doc life would have been a little easier. But of course, that kind of thinking can be a bit futile, right? That type of thinking, it's, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm exactly where I am, which is exactly where I need to be based upon the sum of all of these experiences. If I'd gone another route to film and TV, that route perhaps would have taken me, you know, in a direction that never would have introduced me to documentary film, for one, or, or Southeast Asia, for that matter. Again, remember, I was asked by a colleague to accompany him on his project in Cambodia. That's how I first worked on a doc film, and I first spent time in a Southeast Asian culture. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Anyhow, you see my point here. There are so many different ways to go about working in film, right? So what might they be? Well, certainly one of the more known methods for breaking into the industry and working your way up the ladder, if, you know, so to speak, is as a production assistant, a, a PA. It's not the easiest or most satisfying methods, that's for sure. It's important to note that, that as a PA, you're generally working longer hours than anyone else on set. You know, the old first to arrive, last to leave is practically the PA's motto. You're making far less pay. You very rarely, if ever, get paid any overtime. And duties include everything from doing coffee or food runs. I was once asked to get very specific cat food for a very specific wardrobe person. To shuttling talent and crew to and from set. To lugging heavy pieces of furniture off of the art department's truck. Uh, it's a bit of a thankless job. The pretty classic way of quote-unquote paying your dues. And then working your way up from there. It's the jumping off point from which you can hopefully impress a particular department with your you know, work ethic and, and hopefully at some point get hired on as some sort of assistant in the, the camera, or the art, or sound, or grip and electric departments. The PA works in the production department, which consists of production coordinators, production managers, first and second ADs, or assistant directors, as well as, as producers. If you're unsure of what department that you might eventually like to end up in, working as a PA can give you a great vantage point from which to, you know, to see how other departments function and the various crafts and, and technicians that are involved in those departments. Working as a PA, it really gives you a first-hand account of how a film set works, which has obvious benefits later on. Simply by being around and functioning with a film crew and talent, you get an appreciation for, for how a film set can and, and cannot run efficiently. Which means time and money, which will be a very valuable lesson for, lesson for you as a filmmaker when you're working your own films. To expand just a little bit more upon that, if you work as a PA long enough, you will have, uh, you've, you will have helped out probably, probably all the departments at some point or another. And this gives you such a great vantage point for later on, in particular as a filmmaker, because you have a much greater appreciation for not only what it takes to make a proper film, 
but how the various departments work with, and sadly sometimes <laughs> work against, one another. This in itself, it can be invaluable experience. Now, as you know, coming up through the ranks as a PA was, was how I made my way into and through the industry. And while I wouldn't trade it for anything, I'd also certainly say and point out it's not necessarily the best way for everyone to get into the industry or to be doing what they want to do eventually in the industry. For instance, you might notice that it hasn't been mentioned how one works their way up to being a director or what department is the best path in, in which to do so. There's good reason for that because unlike so many of the other lead film and TV positions like producer, director of photography, or, or art director, there just really isn't any accepted tried and true path to becoming a director, which leads me to film school. Growing up in the 80s, just about every book that I was reading about any famous film director implied that the way to get into the film industry was to essentially move to California and go to film school at UCLA or the University of Southern, Southern California. A few, of course, were going to school in New York, but the majority of the focus tended to be on Los Angeles and going to film school there. I can see why this was the majority of the material that I was coming across or, or that was out there at that point. The heart of the film industry in the United States was, of course, in L.A. So film school was practically the breeding grounds, the minor leagues, if you will, of Hollywood's next filmmakers. At that time, if Hollywood was your goal, going to film school completely made sense. But of course, things are a bit different now. There are well-known film schools all over the world. Hollywood is no longer the only place in which to make a living working in the film and TV industry. In the U.S. alone, one can live in places like Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, or even Albuquerque, New Mexico, and work quite regularly in the film and TV industry. And now with the great demand for video content for just about every company imaginable, one can own their video production company in nearly any kind of town around the world and be making a living producing videos. So the question is, do you need film school for this? In the past, I've had, shall we say, not the most positive opinion of film schools. It also admittedly wasn't always the most informed opinion. But I'd met too many colleagues who'd gone to one of the, for example, the art institutes. Remember, these are very expensive private institutions. They're, they're a chain of institutions, actually, throughout the U.S., who went to school for a year or two there, and they couldn't afford to go anymore. They ended up working in the film industry anyway, and then having to pay off 60 grand in debt without so much as even a degree to speak of. In fact, one of my good friends and colleagues who this happened to now works in the art department full-time on a show like Grimm, and a couple of nights a week, he teaches students at an art institute. However, I've also heard very positive things from friends and colleagues who went to film school. One of my mentors had a great experience going to school at Tisch in New York. He made a number of student films and then ended up interning and, and then eventually working for none other than the late, great Jonathan Demme. He very strongly believes that, that his time in New York, working alongside other like-minded students who shared his passion for filmmaking and for meeting Demi via his film institution, that was the best path for him. Another filmmaker, John Manning, who was recently on the documentary Life, I believe it was episode 31, he spoke very highly of his time in film school. In fact, it's his belief that his time at Brooks Institute, a for-profit institution that for 70 years, uh, it specialized in things like photography, underwater cinematography, and film and video production, was what not only shaped his film career, but allowed him to jump straight to working in the position that he wanted to work in, which was as a film director, without sort of having to, to work your way up that film production ladder. 
It's John's assertion that the Brooks Institute education in itself was the film ladder, that by going through their program, he worked and understood the various positions on a film set, and therefore, why would he bother working as someone's assistant for a long time before maybe an opportunity finally revealed itself whereby he might get his shot at directing? In his way of thinking, he already was the director. So so John formed his own production company, sought his first clients, and he began working as a producer-director and simply hired out all of the other necessary positions. I have another good friend, Brian Kimmel, who's a director DP and owns his own production company, Optic Nerve Productions. He'll actually be on the show next week. He feels similarly to Manning, that it was his immersive instruction at an institute that set him up to begin working as a DP soon after his schooling. I mentioned earlier the great need for more and more video content these days. Whether it's as promotional material for a local company, internet videos for a well-known company, or a show on Netflix or Amazon, there's such a need for video content that it's no wonder that some of us are just investing in some decent camera, lighting, and sound gear, starting our own little boutique production company, and getting out there and making some money without having gone to film school at all or, or without having worked our way up through someone else's production company. I totally get this as well. As I think that I've hinted at, the way that I got into and worked my way through the film and TV industry is not the way that I would necessarily recommend to everyone. Or it might be exactly the way I'd recommend it for someone, right? The truth is, I wouldn't necessarily recommend any one specific method for getting into the industry. Because the reality nowadays is that there are a number of ways in which to do so. And we're all different people with different desires and reasons for working in the film and TV industry. So at this point, I would find it highly irresponsible and insensitive for anyone to tell you the right way to get into film and TV. It's simply just not that simple or straightforward anymore. So figure out what will best work for you and just go for it, man. Finally, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. How did you end up working in the film and TV industry? Or, or if you're not already and, and, and hope to, what is your plan to do so? I'm super curious, as I'm sure are other doc livers who have done this or, or themselves plan on doing so. My email is chris at barongfilms.com. Drop me a line and let me know. Speaking of emails, coming up in our next segment is the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com academy today, and we'll see you there. And now it's time for the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. This one comes from Dean in the UK. 
Actually, I've put two of Dean's emails together because I really appreciate the things that he had to say. It's important to note that the first time I heard from Dean, he let me know that he was getting set to make his first documentary film. He was excited by the episodes of TDL and that lo and behold, he was not unable to download any of the shows prior to episode number 20. I immediately investigated this to see that indeed only the 10 most recent episodes were showing up on iTunes and Stitcher and, and, and various other podcast apps. There was no problem gathering all the episodes via the archive at the Documentary Life website, but there didn't seem to be a way through these other applications. You can imagine this was very troubling to me. So I quickly investigated and researched and, and sent off various emails to various entities Long story short, a setting in my WordPress settings had had reverted to only showing the 10 most recent episodes. I quickly rectified this and, and TDL was fully back up and running. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Dean. A bit of email correspondence would ensue after that, which is what I'd also like to share. And uh, Dean wrote, Hey Chris, I'm able to get all of your episodes from One Upwards now, which is cool. Been listening to a few while out hiking. In the UK, they call people from Newcastle Geordies. Laugh out loud, you'll probably know that. And of course, that was in reference to um, my wife is actually from, from Newcastle. And so he's referring to that. He continues, I'm off to Nepal on the 5th of October and finish on the 22nd, but staying in Kathmandu overnight, hoping to get some video and shots. I'm planning on shooting a few short docs up there, one about why people travel there and the hike, another will be about uh, guides and Sherpas of Nepal. I'm hoping the people I ask for interviews will, will say yes. This is my first ever documentary, so nervous and excited all at the same time. I think I'm going to jump in head first and, and see what happens. I have bought my first camera today, a Panasonic G7. I think it fits in with my budget and traveling up to Everest Base Camp. Can't wait to see Elvis of Cambodia. I have Cambodia on my list of places to go. When will you be finishing your Elvis of Cambodia doc? Where can I find more info on it and how you made it? I'm glad I found your podcast and looking forward to listening more. It would be great if you were to put an episode together of the first time you made your first documentary and what you were thinking and how you did it. It'd be cool to know your workflow process, including pre-production and post. I think that might be a good episode that beginner doc filmmakers like myself would really appreciate. Well, Dean, first of all, I want to thank you for the email course correspondence. It's been lovely, and, I, and I'm so happy to hear that topics and guests on the show are inspiring you to live out your own documentary life. That is truly what this show is all about. And I'm excited to hear about your trip to Nepal. So please keep me aware as your trip and your filming progresses. And I think that you'll get some great stuff with your Panasonic G7. Many have used that camera in, in these kinds of environs, and, and they've come back with some outstanding footage. Make sure to do as much research as possible, and make sure to use that G7 a bit as well, um, certainly prior to going. Trust me, take it from me, you don't want to be in the middle of Nepal when you have questions or issues with any of your gear. It's not fun. And thank you for your interest in Elvis of Cambodia. We're very passionate about the project, and, and, and you know what? We're hopeful to have it finished by the end of 2018. It's currently at about 85% shot, so a return trip to Cambodia is in order. After that, it'll, it'll be all about post-production. For more information on Elvis, you can always visit you know, our documentary production company's website, which is www.barongfilms.com. Lastly, I want to thank you for the show topic recommendation. A show about the process that I used on my first documentary might indeed be a helpful one to first-time filmmakers such as yourself. If nothing else, maybe you can avoid some ridiculous or costly mistakes that I made my first time out. So Dean, please look for a future segment on this in an upcoming TDL episode. Thanks again for the emails and the great suggestions. 
That was the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. If you've got any suggestions for the show or recommendations for doc industry guests or any other kind of feedback, email me directly at chris at barongfilms.com. And your email could be on a future Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. Again, that email is the best way to get your voice heard and the best way that I can tailor the documentary life to you. So drop me a line at chris at barongfilms.com, which is C-H-R-I-S at barongfilms.com, B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. After we come back from the break, we'll be talking with filmmaker and performance artist Jeremy Shido, and I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life. Jeremy Shido, I'm excited to have you on, on today on The Documentary Life. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I I had been you know aware of your work a few years ago, obviously with with your with your documentary feature Death Metal Angola, and looking more into the work that you have done with that film and done since then, um, obviously with the Angola Project and and, and some other things. Uh, I I am beyond impressed. I I actually feel like <laughs> I need to. For the audience, I feel like I need to re- read a bit of your bio because I'm not going to do it justice. So if, if you will allow me, um, give <laughs> okay. me give okay. me 20 seconds, and, and, and I'd love to read this so the audience has some context uh, with who we're dealing with here, man. Jeremy graduated cum laude in painting and comparative literature from Columbia University in New York and trained at the Actors Studio. A Fulbright and Guggenheim recipient, he is the artistic co-director of the performance and film company Kabula 6, voted Company of the Year 2009 by by Bellitanz and awarded Outstanding Artist of the Year 2010 by the Austrian Ministry of the Arts. Kabula 6 has presented work for both film and stage all over the world. Jeremy's film directing credits include the award-winning feature documentary Death Metal Angola, the six-part Crime Europe series, and the short documentary Makondo in addition to several short fiction films. He is known as a performance artist with a unique approach to stage and film, blending emotionally gripping personal stories with the larger social contexts within which they emerge, including the trilogy The Angola Project, which premiered at Impulsstanz in Vienna and PS122 in New York. Working as a dancer, actor, and filmmaker, he has performed and presented work around the world on stage, TV, and in cinema. And apparently, Jeremy, you speak English, German, Spanish, and Portuguese. I, uh, yes. I'm not honored, man. I, I, I mean, I'm not worthy. I'm very honored. But <laughs> I am not worthy. It's <laughs> very kind of you. I, um, yeah, I, I'm super happy to, to talk to you. I, I very rarely hear my bio read to me, so it's, it's, a, little, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a little bit strange. But. It's trippy. It's humbling. It's strange. It is. It is. Yeah. It, it's, it's a different thing. But I felt like it was appropriate to do that because I wanted to make sure to um, I wanted to make sure that that like I said, our audience has some context um, in in which you 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 do your work and where it comes from, which is yeah. really where we should probably begin this conversation. Where Jeremy Shito and and, and your work comes from, um, you know. In fact, when I reached out to you, who knows? You might have thought it a little strange that you know here's this guy you know who who reaches out to me in part to talk about a doc film you know that, that you did that came out four or five years ago. But, yeah. but, 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 but the thing is, 
Jeremy, what has struck me um, and, and that I felt like would be great to have you on the show is is, is you have filmed in, in developing countries. You have filmed mm-hmm. in, well, let's just say adverse conditions, right? You and I have, have quite a bit in common. You focused your work uh, in Angola, where, where I focused it more in Cambodia and Nepal. And, and I just feel like, and, and we have a lot of, um, a lot of doc livers, a lot of my listeners are doing work in developing countries. And mm-hmm. I just felt mm-hmm. like you were a natural fit for the show. So again, um, welcome aboard. Great. I'm really glad to have you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here and to, to have this conversation. Uh, Jeremy, give me mm-hmm. a, a brief idea of how performance and art, and then of course film, um, became to be a big part of your life. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in Detroit and uh, I used to, you know, we used to dance on the street. We used to break dance. Um, and I was, I was sort of the, I was the white kid in, in the group. Um, we would, you know, we'd pull out our cardboard and dance on the, um, on the street corner. And, um, yeah. did you have parachute it, pants? It was, I, 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 I didn't have parachute pants actually, <laughs> I didn't, but, but I was very aware of them all around me. Of course. Um, uh, I, I had a, I had a more humble style. Okay. Um, yeah, and I I actually think that that in a lot of ways that experience and sort of the experience of growing up doing sports in a yeah. way and sort of the performance aspect of, of sort of belonging to um, belonging to a, a, a team and a group of people yeah. who in a certain moment in time have to perform right. um, is a huge part of how I ended up uh, doing you know moving into into performing arts and you know and early on I did a bunch of theater. Um, uh, and I had always painted, uh, as part of my life. And those, those yeah. things sort of, I, I carried with me all the way through, um, college when I was in New York. Uh, and then after college, I, you know, I started working as an actor, as a Shakespearean actor yeah. and, and continuing to dance. And I, and I think, uh, and eventually, you know, I, you know, I was on the West coast and then back in on the East coast working with a, with a, um, a director named Andre Gregory, um, doing a bunch of Grotowski plastique work. And then I was at the actor studio and, and I then got an opportunity to go to Europe, uh, and work with a bunch of performing performance artists, um, in Europe. And, uh, and I, and I have a feeling that that's actually where most of sort of where I kind of, feel like I came into being a, I came into being a working artist, um, where that's all that I did. Um, and I would move kind of continually fluidly between different forms of, of, of work and whether that that be working as a dancer that I I continued to do or working as an actor, um, for stage and film and, and, and then eventually, um, getting opportunities to actually make movies. Tell us the story how how your how your documentary film Death Metal Angola. Tell us how it came to be, and I, I ask that because you didn't intend originally to shoot this particular documentary. In in fact, it was it spawned from an entirely other project. Yeah, no, no, it was a, it was a mistake. It was a it was a total mistake that that Death Metal Angola happened. I I was working on a, on another film about. Um, Chinese construction workers rebuilding a railway line through the middle right. of Angola. Right. And, and that in itself came about in a strange way because I, <laughs> I had been invited 
to a theater in Lisbon to, to create a new performance piece, and I wanted to make a movie, and and um, we we made an arrangement that I would you know document the my research, and somehow that research led me to Angola. I, uh, the the story that I was working on could only be told if I were in Angola. Yeah, right. And um and and so I, I invited a a very dear friend of mine who had who had worked with on stage quite a bit, who was not a filmmaker. Um, but just very smart and very up for an adventure, uh, who's from London, actually, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Barnett. And, um, and we uh, flew off to Angola and decided to take this, you know, to, to ride the, the train from the coast as far into through the country into the border as yeah. possible. Uh, as close to the border Sounds as possible. Sounds great. That's uh, so awesome. <laughs> and it's... And it really was. We had like two little cameras with us, and yeah. we just kind of was like, "Let's just see what happens." And and um, and the train kind of just sort of stops in this town called Huambo, right, which mm-hmm. used to be the old capital of Angola. Um, at, at that time, I think that the train goes further now, but but at that time, in, in the Huambo was. Um, you know, it was it was the capital under sort of colonial Portuguese rule. Okay, right. And in, in, um, for for like a year before the Portuguese were thrown out, and it's um, and it was uh, in after um, the Portuguese left, uh, there were uh, ensuing there were a number of different wars that ensued, mm. and Huang had been largely destroyed. Yes. Um, and the railway line had been totally, totally decimated yeah. from that point on. Um, and so the, the train stopped and we, we got out and I, you know, I, I wanted a cup of coffee desperately. <laughs> um, and in Huambo, there was only one place where you could get like a decent cup of coffee right. and, and not the, the Nescafe the cafe. instant <laughs> little packages, <laughs> the, which, which I'm perfectly, which I'm, I'm personally very fond of. I Excellent. Say, of course. Cause point. it like reminds you of these countries. <laughs> Yeah, but I ended up. But we ended up going to the Imperial, the this this little cafe where all the sort of there are a bunch of expats and military guys and different folks that, that kind of like would gather there in this sort of main square. And and we were having a cup of coffee. And um, there was a guy that was maybe three tables away from us. Uh, so this young man with dreadlocks, kind of like a blue uh, button-up shirt, sort of Oxford shirt, who who like looks over at me and waves. And so I kind of wave back and then he motions me to come over and so I pick up my coffee and I go over to him and I sit down and we start talking and and he asks me what I'm doing um, and I say well I'm working on this 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 film and he says oh that's great and I said well and then I ask him well, what he what he does and he says oh he's a he's a musician and then I think that, that's fantastic well what do you play and he said death metal and I um I've um, I was just sort of stopped because I, it was the last thing in the world I expected. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, death metal. And I was like, can, are you playing? Can I hear you play? Is there any, and he was like, and he said, um, wait, let me make a couple of calls. And so he, he started calling around and, and he said, well, listen, why don't you, why don't you visit? Why don't you come tonight to the, you got very excited. Why don't you come tonight to the, to the orphanage, hmm. which I, at, at the time I thought was a, was a, the name of a club. Oh and wow! So, <laughs> and so I invited a uh, this um, uh, a couple of people from from this Chinese construction company that I that I had met or that I was meeting. I said, "Hey, do you want to go listen to this concert at this yeah. place called the Orphanage?" <laughs> and so this woman and, and the driver and then and and then Jim and I all hop into their you know SUV and we go to the address where it is and we end up in this 
old bombed out um, milk factory. Yeah. Uh, with no lights, it was in, in the middle of the night, and, and we pulled up, and we're like, I'm not sure this is the place, and we kind of, and we pull up, and it happened to be, and there was there was this guy, his name is Wilker, who um, uh, who because the generator had gone out, the electricity in that part of town had gone out, which is which is quite common. Yeah. He was uh, siphoning electricity from the neighbor's house with where they had one generator. And uh, so he had this cord that, you know, to plug in his amplifier. Yeah. And there were sort of shadows of children running around everywhere. <laughs> um, and I had no idea what was going on. And Wilker was sort of set up and, and he then proceeded to play in this, this courtyard um, of this bombed out milk factory. At that time, I was still thinking that I, I, I was making this movie about, about the Chinese construction workers. And even uh, after we left, I, you know, I thought, huh, this might be an interesting stop along the railway. Might be a know, part of it, right. Be an interesting part of it, and and we got some money to go back and and to film a sort of a, a trailer, a teaser, um, with a with a proper cinematographer yeah. and, and crew, and um, and so I called up Wilker to find out if if they were around, and he got very excited. He said, yes, 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 yes. He said that we're we're organizing the first ever national rock concert, and you're going to film it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so I thought we would do, oh, that's great. We'll do a short yeah, on, of course. you know, the rock scene as we're kind of all double up, you know, we'll shoot what we're shooting for the, for the Chinese, for the Chinese construction project and film and, and, um, and then we'll shoot the short. And when we got there, I ended up meeting a woman who becomes a protagonist in the film, Sonia Ferreira, who, yes. I, who I'd met briefly before, but I, I, didn't understand uh, when I had first met her just how compelling of a of a human being she is as a as well as a, as a character. And so when when we were there, we we realized that we had something that was yeah sort of more trenchant, uh, deeper than 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 what I what I had uh, you know originally thought of you know so sort of the novelty of of this musical form that that you don't expect in this place. And then realizing that it's it's really. Um, that that it's really about post-war reconstruction and 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 healing um at some fundamental level and these people are at the core of of an incredibly um difficult and important endeavor something that struck me very early on with the film and it's something and it's a brave move on your part it's not something i would have done as a filmmaker and and i've been faced with this with a number of film projects that i've worked on in particular anything that I've done in a place like Cambodia, which is a post-conflict zone, as I'm sure you are aware of mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, 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 and it's yeah. that this idea of you've got to give your audience some idea of the context, some idea of the history, whether it's a three, four, five minute, you know, sequence, whether it's people yep. talking directly about it or what have you. And what you did with Death Metal Angola, unless I completely missed this, something that mm -hmm. I really appreciated was there was never that, there never seemed to be that breakaway moment where suddenly the director comes in and, okay, so by the way, here's the quick, here's the quick rundown of what happened in Angola. You just sort yeah. of let the environment, you let the shots, you let the pictures of people and the stories that they tell, you just sort of let that happen. It was almost as if Angola was representative of of any post-conflict zone. And I was very, very impressed with that, that, that I felt like 
that 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 it worked that way. Like you didn't come out and tell yeah. the history of Angola. You didn't tell about the warfare that happened. It was just hinted at by people talking directly about the destruction and the demise. And then of course the scenes of bombed out buildings. And I really appreciated that. You know, you, you have that opening mm. sequence or very early on where we see um the close-ups of of what the 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 demining that's happening, and that's something that mm-hmm. that speaks directly to me because I've dealt with that you, absolutely in, in projects. Yeah, I just really appreciate it. I guess yeah. your sort of subtle way of unveiling a war-torn nation. Uh, my my feeling about about sort of historical, um, particularly in Angola, about sort of the 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 history of war in Angola is that you there there are Angola was embroiled in nearly 40 years of, of, of almost continual warfare. Yeah. There's no way to actually, my, my feeling is that there's no way to, to understand that complexity and to make it real to a, a viewership um, mm. in, in any meaningful, in any any meaningful, meaningful way. way. And, and, right. and any attempt that I would make to do that would be an attempt to, to sort of placate in a, sort of an intellectual, you know, wow. a, sort of an intellectual preoccupation on, on the part mm-hmm. of the viewership that actually would distance themselves, distance them from what a, from an experience, from a cinematic experience. And, wow. and my, my sense of cinema is that cinema is, is myth-making and that, um, and then documentary as well. It's, is, I, I don't often see documentary and fiction as, as totally, um, separate things. I see them all. I see it as a as a continuum of 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 um, making movies, storytelling, and, and making that, movies. Absolutely. And there are different ways in which you engage with reality. If you're, you know, you're in documentary, you can. There's scenes that you end up asking somebody, "Oh, the mic was off. Can you just say that again?" <laughs right. Or oh, do you mind? You know, what the, do you mind? just walking through this way instead of that way because yeah. we, we can't fit the camera this way and the people abide, right? And so you're directing and you're directing people to do something that they wouldn't necessarily do right. in, in, those, in those moments. And it, it tends to happen later on. In the beginning, if you're shooting verite, you're just you know, shooting whatever you can grab and right. trying to set up shots. And, um, but it, you know, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a fictionalization of, a, of an actual world the moment that the camera is there. So I don't, I don't have a, and I, and so I just saw that the, the, the core of the story is that there's a, there's an unprecedented amount of destruction that's mm. happened to a place mm. and to a, and people who've lived through this. And these are these people. And then this is the morning after the battle, right? It's sort of the, the opening shots of the film are trying to, um, of the landscapes were about the next day, you know, and, <laughs> um, and I felt that, that, the more I contextualized what that was, it it would take it would pull you out of whatever the cinema was doing. Or, and it was interesting because when when we we got um, American distribution, that mm. the American distributors uh, actually wanted that context at the very opening of the film. Of course, they did. <laughs> and so I worked very hard to 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 uh, you know we did it so the american version of the oh, film oh um, interesting has a has a it, it just has a couple of titles in the beginning okay okay um and and yep. the titles and, and i did the titles in in a in a way to um uh 
to, to list, instead of saying, describing the conflict, I, I had titles which just listed the numbers, the numbers of dead, the numbers of destroyed, the numbers of whatever. From this time to this time, there yeah, was more. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then you're left just with the numbers. So that the numbers themselves became um, in, incomprehensible, right? They were, they were just sort of incomprehensibly large numbers that don't necessarily mean anything that you understood at this. It was, it was, a, it was kind of a battle between, between me and the, and the distribution company to, to reduce and reduce oh, yes. how much we're telling of course, of course, and, and yeah, and some people are happy that that that, that little context is there because I'm it sure. also grounds you. You know, the other side is that sure. an audience can feel grounded by that, and I get you, know, you don't it. want I people totally to get it. I totally get it, but I, I just I I didn't see the American version, and 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 we wouldn't even yeah. be having this part of the discussion if I had, in a yeah. way, quite frankly. And so yeah. I just appreciate that you did something that I don't often see, and I don't often do myself yeah. ever. I always give some yeah. some kind of com uh, some kind of context. So I really yeah. appreciated that you didn't. And 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 kind of a side note of that, or is that you know it encourages someone to kind of look into it. You know, Look afterwards, I want to know what well, what exactly Absolutely. did happen in Angola, and and then that's wonderful. I, but I always feel like that's the most exciting thing that you can do with the film is that right. you can inspire an, an engagement in somebody's actual life, yes, right? That yes. that you you know, it's part of like the film itself shouldn't tell everything. It should it should start a conversation in the world in which other aspects come and speak you know speak back to it yeah. contradict it um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, hold it up you know that it becomes part of part of cultural dialogue mas é melhor contar a verdade toda porque essa coisa de ver o dinheiro com a gente acaba sempre por saber e no princípio the title is death metal angola but but for me uh, it's 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 about so much more, right? It's really about yeah. Sonia and Wilker, right? It's about this couple and yep. what they're doing at the orphanage, and 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 music is a part of that. Absolutely, it's 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 a binding force. Yeah. But but man, the the film is really about this incredible woman and and her boyfriend yeah. and the work that they're doing. Yeah. So so the at the at the center of the film is a is a. a an orphanage. Uh, a, it's a an orphanage is not quite the right word, but it's it's because it's a it's a it's a it is an orphanage. Everybody that they're war orphans that are are at the center of this place. It's called Okutiuka. Yes, and it's in 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 Huambu. Um, but it's also it's a it's like a, a center for for youth. And uh, Sonia Ferreira was a um, she was a a, a teacher. Um, who experienced the wars in Angola, who lived through them, who survived them. Um, and her, and she couldn't help herself from taking care of kids and the most, and the most vulnerable kids yeah. were our boys that both during the war, um, she did sort of Herculean with Herculean efforts, she saved a group of kids. She tells a story about it, and then, and then after the war, um, that the the kids who are the the most vulnerable uh, happen to be young boys who end up who will end up on the street and die um, if they they don't have you know when they've lost their their parents. And right. she becomes a, a surrogate uh, mother for all of them. But I, I think that the, the one of the things that becomes really interesting about Sonia, and one of the many many things that's interesting about Sonia. Mm-hmm. Um, is that uh, the way that she found strength uh, 
through the years of the war is through music and in, and specifically through rock and roll. Yes. Um, and the meaning of rock and roll in in this particular in this particular context where rock was not a a popular art form, right? And <laughs> and there's a, and there's a lot of complexity about how rock entered into Angola and sort of her relationship to it. But she she was always dedicated. She was like to all of the rock musicians. She knew totally. everybody and everything. And, and it provided her with a sense of, of, of sort of, uh, of the way that she describes it is that it, it's a, it's a kind of a, a both a, a kind of a raucous and, and vibrant, uh, <laughs> resistance to the pain around her, a way to, to deal with, with pain and anger and, and, and also to, and even more importantly, to, to create community, you know, yes. and, um, and, and I think that that sort of that community building aspect of the music itself is also at the center of the work that she does with all of with yeah. these 55 orphaned yeah. boys. Her generosity um, is unparalleled. When we do this work in developing <laughs> countries and we're doing documentary work there, the relationships that we that we develop with our subjects, it, it's it's imp- it's impossible to ignore the fact that no matter what your status is, no matter how much what your financial situation is back home, no matter what that is, you're always seen in those countries as someone who has money. And yeah. that affects your relationship, right? With with people that you meet in these countries. Yeah. And, and, and how can that not in some way affect your relationship with your subject? So I'd love to hear in your words how you handled that mm-hmm. with someone like a, like Sonia, someone who is basically taking in 50 plus orphaned kids on her own and providing, you know, a place for them to live, to be educated, to, to, to eat and, and, and survive. Right. How do yeah. you handle that situation? If you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Sonia is incredibly savvy and smart. She's um, uh, and she's Sonia. Sonia is a a, um, a person who lives both, uh, you know, as I as I met her and knew her, and um, and a lot of a lot of these guys live both between sort of this this reality in Angola and Africa, and also um, their relationships in Europe. But so as I come in and I meet Sonia, Sonia has has an agenda. <laughs> you know, she yes. she sees a camera and Wilker, you know, they would see a camera. They see a camera. And when Wilker said, yes, we're making the first ever rock, we're organizing the first ever national rock concert and you were going to film it. They saw an opportunity of, yeah. of getting... <laughs> publicity for this event of right course. but it's not just for the event it's for it's for the entire sort of social cultural political movement that they're trying to to bring into legitimacy yes right and so that that so they understand the power of media in that way and so it's not just me arriving and going oh my god i'd want to make a story about you and no. it's it's that the two of us are figuring out how we benefit or don't benefit from this relationship. Yes. Um, which immediately makes, you know, puts us into a, a negotiation in which, you know, they can stop the film at any point by refusing to continue to participate. Right. Right. So there's a power that they have. And, and I have a power by, by being able to tell their story in a way that they would never allow or to go into places, you know, as they open up, 
um, we're, we're attracted to each other because of a genuine interest in each other's lives. Um, we're also involved in, in a, even though nobody makes very much money off of documentaries, there's a, there is the commercial, there's an aspect of commercialization, of commodification of right. another human being's life that is at the core of, of what making a documentary is. And you, yes. there, you will never get away from that. Yes. And you can employ all different kinds of strategies to try to be self-reflective on it, to mitigate it, to um, reveal it, or, you know, in some way to, to, to acknowledge it, but it doesn't get rid of it. It's, it remains there. So you constantly have to negotiate that in your relationships. And it then becomes even more complicated if the person that like you might be pretty poor back home, but you're wealthy enough to buy a plane ticket and have some equipment and <laughs> right. fly to this place and have the time to do this thing. Um, so you do have money. You, you're, you come from a, a cultural situation in which it's, you have, you are privileged yes. in a way that that perhaps the person that you're filming, uh, you know, is, doesn't experience in their life, <laughs> right. and uh, it's not. And and so you know, it becomes awkward when you're like, listen, I have, I'm not going to pay you for this, yeah, right? Right, right, or right, right. I can't be, but maybe I can offer you a little bit of, maybe I can offer you this. So we, how do we? And then you realize, like, whatever sort of pure and altruistic in your own mind is is not you're part of a you're part of the commerce and uh, <laughs> yes the second to... you buy lunch <laughs> yeah the second you buy lunch um all right jeremy let's as much as i would sit here and talk talk death metal angola with you for the next you know hour easily uh in the interest of time we have to to move this along a little bit and 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 i want to mm -hmm. um i want to talk about the angola project and yeah Wow. Uh, I'll be honest. It's not why initially I reached out to you. I didn't know anything about mm -hmm. the Angola project until I did further research, uh, after reaching out to you. Um, obviously, um, after having, uh, uh, I reached out to you initially for death metal Angola. And then yeah. after that did my research with Angola project and my head has been fucking spinning since that. <laughs> uh, I geek, uh -huh. I tend to geek out on meta filmmaking as it is. And well, uh, there you go. <laughs> Jeremy, you just go beyond meta and meta. <laughs> and that being said, uh, why don't you give us a, a, a short, if even possible synopsis of what the Angola yeah. project is about and really how death metal Angola was kind of a little piece that was wrapped in it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, the Angola project was a, a was a is a performance piece initially, originally, and it, it's a it's a performance about a, um, a about a film that was never made, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And the we so the. Um, so it's actually it's it's a performance piece that is now being becoming a movie. Um, oh my god! And so the so the and so that's so the meta level of it is is taken one one step more. So the Angola Project is about as a performance piece. It's about a guy who um, tries to make a movie, and in the process of making the movie, he ends up traveling around the world, only to realize that that all of the stories that he's searching out in the world come back to the story of where he grew up, yeah. which is in Detroit for you Detroit, uh, that's right, and yeah. For, for, for yeah this this character is me um, and the way that it, it, it came into being is that I was invited to create as a this um, 
I was invited to, to create a performance piece for a theater in Lisbon, and I didn't want to make a the performance piece. I wanted to make a movie, and so we made this <laughs> this deal that I would document I would document the movie uh, the 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 research on on this film, yeah. and I would use that documentation as a part of a lecture performance, which was very fa which was a very fashionable thing at that moment in time in Europe, <laughs> and. Um, in which I stand on stage with a bunch of video material and sound and, and images, and I kind of tell a story with this stuff as a lecture, but it's really a performance. Something strange happened. He was unable to speak. Not like the molassesy way you might be unable to run fast enough in a dream. It wasn't heavy or sticky or strained. There was suddenly a complete lack of effort like a gear disengaging or when you jump off the cliff and are suddenly paragliding the moment a solid becomes gas it was an uncoupling quite peaceful he could see the room it was very quiet that was sort of the beginning of the angola project and the film that I tried to make was this film about the Chinese construction companies rebuilding a railway through the middle of Angola, right? right? Um, and all of the obstacles that I hit in trying to tell that story, not the least of which was people not wanting at that time to hear the story mm. or not thinking that that story was of interest or that a story <laughs> about Africans with, and Chinese with no um, uh, white, uh, white characters involved was going to sell in their markets. Um, and so in, as, as the, the story of me trying to make this movie and the, 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 the things, the, the, um, the impediments that I, I sort of hit yeah. sort of reveal deeper issues about colonialism and racism that are persistent in, uh, in, in historically and contemporarily in, in our world. And that those things exist in every action that we do. Yeah. Right. And so basically the way that the, the performance pieces work is that I'm on stage and it begins with my back to the audience. I'm in the dark and it's like being in an edit suite with two huge screens as I'm trying <laughs> to tell the story and, piece together this film and then I come forward and give a big monologue about the transatlantic slave trade and then all lands and all of those stories all land with me and my best friend uh, growing up in, in Detroit in a mulberry tree in his grandmother's backyard. Right. Right. And that's, that's the first part of it. And then the second part of the, the project is, is a series of pitches for films in which I, I pitch the documentary project to a bunch of funders um, and it's based on a, on a real pitch I did in Barcelona years ago um, and me thinking that I, I had nailed the pitch and everybody was going to throw money at me and then realizing that that wasn't going to happen and it was much more complex um, and everybody wanted me to change the film for them to give me money right. uh, and so I then changed the film each time pitching it again anew and anew um, as I confront sort of the world and 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 this is a performance piece that, that ended up touring uh, some very large sort of festivals in the world. Yes. It's now becoming a, um, an action, a movie and the movie, the Angola project is the, is the working title for it. Okay. Um, and the movie is based, basically I was invited last summer back to Detroit for the first time in many years. Mm. I hadn't been home in years to perform the Angola project at the Detroit Institute of Arts and this okay. big, stage 
and and we filmed it and we also went with me and my family and a film crew and we uh and we filmed my return to detroit okay um and so the the film is is really a um is is about this about me trying to put on this performance piece about traveling around the world yes and at the center of the performance piece is it is a mythological detroit of my artwork and the way in which that conf- that crashes against the actual Detroit at this moment in time. Yeah. Um, and it's a, sort of about homecoming and, and issues around, around race and who's allowed to tell what story. Um, and it's a very meta piece. As we wrap up our conversation here, what I'd love to, I'd love to hear directly from you is, what is it, Jeremy, you're ultimately trying to achieve with your works like Death Metal Angola and the Angola Project? What are your hopes with these projects? There's a, there's a part of me moving into making the work that I make that is about, it's about trying to engage in the world. Um, it, it's giving an excuse to engage in the things that I'm, the people that I find um, compelling and interesting, um, the, the, the stories in the world that are compelling and interesting that I want to be able to, to, to know, just to be able to get to know or to have a relationship with. And this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a means making artwork is a means for moving into the world. It gives mm. me permission. The other, the other thing I, I realized that the stories that I'm, that I'm particularly, uh, attracted to mm. are, are, are stories that shift what our typical vision of what the world is, that give us a, another way of imagining what thing, another way of imagining the world. The world is not as we think it is. Indeed. People don't expect, in, in a very sort of somewhat superficial way to say that, you know, nobody expects death metal to be in, in Angola is the is sort of the... <laughs> How, how interesting, how, how funny, Africans playing, you know, death metal, Scandinavian and upstate New York. Yeah, exactly. White, yeah. White, white music, that cultural thing. But, but and who fact, are these Chinese wor- workers in the middle of Angola doing what? Building a, this railway? How does right. that happen? Yeah. yeah. And and how is the story in which there are no white people involved, in which Angolans and and uh, Angolans and Chinese are 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 creating, you know, the 21st century together, yeah, yeah. right? It's this vision of the world that we don't expect. But I think that the deeper thing is like with the death metal is is that the hook is like, oh, this is how how novel. But the truth is is that this form gives it, it allows it allows it's robust and enough to be able to withstand the stories that these people have to tell right and so the things that you believe come that are sort of cultural signifiers really they're like a like a a genre of music right Mm. in in fact what it is is that when it enters into another cultural environment it it, that it that other cultural environment can reveal the power the maybe a deeper power that 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 form has when you've stripped it of the of its sort of sort of superficial cultural aspect, right? Mm-hmm. And so it it can reveal aspects about our needs as humans, about who we really are, about how we you know struggle to be alive, how we struggle to make sense of our worlds, how we struggle to love, how we how we struggle to deal with loss, um, and how we we rebuild after a tragedy and 
um, and how we how we dream of of great things and and how that all you know and that the, these sort of unexpected um, uh, mashups of culture can reveal that and I and I feel in a lot of ways it's in that's those spaces kind of be- between the things sort of in in the cracks between the things that that we know is sort of where I grew up and where I exist and what I, and that's the, the, it's the existence that I want to be able to, to help give voice to, to, to highlight and give um, and to respect and, and yeah, to honor that space. And it couldn't be a more appropriate time to be examining some of these issues in our particular political climate, shall we say? Absolutely. And I feel like it's, I feel like it's part of it's, I feel like this, these voices that exist in the world in the various forms um, are more necessary now um, as a, uh, you know, as a counterpoint, as a, uh, to, to what's, is to the kind of atrophy of, of, of dialogue and, and, um, that's, that we're kind of living through the, um, yeah. now it's the most important most important possible time. You better believe it. As we um as we wrap up here, Jeremy, and I ask most of my guests this, and I would love mm. to hear Jeremy. Jeremy Shido, how is it that you how is it that you live and lead your own documentary life? Yeah, I think that, that I've been very fortunate that I've I've um I've been able to work uh almost exclusively as a as an artist for yes for a large part of my sort of adult life. And, um, uh, and part of that is because of, of my, my perform, because of, of me working as a performer, I would, right. I would, um, I would be able to, and working as a performer in Europe, um, that, that I was able to, I was able to, to my day job would be doing projects that we would have. I never, never wealthy, um, went, you know, a pretty Spartan lifestyle in in a lot of ways, Mm. traveled a tremendous amount. Um, but, uh, but I always was able to do what I wanted to do, um, and engage in, in storytelling and in, in those things, whether it be on stage or whether it be as an actor on, in a, BBC TV series or in, on a, in a movie um, or getting some money to be able to, to make my, my film projects. So, but it's it, that, that the life has been one of having the only way that it's been possible is being willing to move back and forth between these different forms yes. constantly and, and often having to do several things at the same time. So yeah. there's an extraordinary amount of, of uncertainty and extraordinary amount of stress um, there's lots of joys and perks and, and the ability to, you know, I feel extraordinarily fortunate to have, have been able to see much of the world. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's, it's not, it's by no means easy. And then, I, and then in moments, and I think this is the other thing that's very important is that in moments of, um, uh, challenging moments in which maybe I, I'd be broke. Right. Or I just like I was between things and I didn't have anything is that I, I would have a, a support network that would support me. Right. Whether that be family or friends, um, that in those crucial moments, 
being able to turn for, for periods of time to people who could take me in or to um, who, who if I, you know, suddenly had a, a hospital bill that I couldn't pay, you know, that I, I had, I had family people that would be able to step up and, and provide me that uh, until I could get it back to them. And I, and I, and I believe that nobody can exist without that and definitely not in this, in this field. And, and it's very, very, or it's very hard you know, um, and and I think that that has allowed me to be as, um, because I knew that that was there uh, in moments of potential crisis. That that's allowed me to 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 be um, to take risks. Yes. You know, um, and to put myself in a in a in precarious situations, both sort of financially and physically. Um, and <laughs> and I I'm, I've been very you know I've been very fortunate in that way. Um, and I don't underestimate the, the importance that that's played in the decisions that I've made. If I didn't have that, I would, I would have made different decisions at, at, at key moments without a doubt. I, I can't thank you enough, man. It's that's been true. a delightful conversation. Um, yeah. I'm so glad that, uh, that you agreed to be on this. And when, uh, when the Angola project itself becomes, becomes a film, um, I would love to have you on again, Jeremy. Fantastic. Um, I, I will do. I will do my my best to to make that possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it will happen. And uh, and as soon as as soon as as soon as you have a, a, any future performances lined up, please let me know. I, I yeah. have to see this man. I have. I have to see the performance. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And have a great evening. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot, man. Okay. Okay. Bye, bye, Chris. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.